Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. For our introduction to the scripture this morning, we want to offer the idea that most scholars assume that Lamentations was composed shortly after the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BCE when grief was still fresh. The book itself is a collection of highly stylized poems that stand in a long tradition of laments for fallen cities, dating back to the end of the third millennium during the age of the Sumerians. Despite the scholarly debate, the tradition that Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations is ancient and persistent. Reading Lamentations reveals deep grief sorrow, and even complaint over the past events. And yet, as we shall hear today, embedded within the poetry of Lamentations is a call to radiant hope for the future and a steadfast assurance of God's mercy and compassion. Hear now the reading from Lamentations from the New Revised Standard Version, chapter 3. Verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thus ends the reading. We have a special gift today. We welcome today uh, the Reverend Dr. Thomas J. Ord uh, as our guest speaker this morning. Uh, if you've been around St. Andrew long enough, you know my deep commitment to helping those who have been in the mainline tradition in particular to reimagine concepts of God that may no longer work for them and to introduce folks to a God in the Bible that maybe they've never met but has been there all along. I share a similar vision with Dr. Ord. We've been trained uh, from some of the same schools of thought under some of the same 
uh, theologians and influencers of the 20th century. Of course, Dr. Orr took it to the next level and uh, has uh, become, I think, one of the most influential theologians in this conversation about reimagining the God of the Bible and the God of our real lived experience. It is a real joy to welcome Tom to St. Andrew. Tom is currently leading a doctoral program with Northwind Theological Seminary. He's also the director of the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's written over 30 books and articles over the last several years and is cranking out about a book every year now. We have many of those books for sale today if you'd like to know more. Maybe most importantly, uh, Tom is, uh, uh, is married and a father uh, of three uh, grown daughters. I like to think of Tom as a theologian of love and divine love, and I think you'll hear that today. Would you please welcome Dr. Thomas Ord? Thank you, Pastor Mark. Uh, yes, I'm a, a theologian, which... In one sense, if you think about God, think about the divine, you're a theologian. So we're probably all theologians in this room. But in another sense, people actually pay me (laughs) to think about God and help them think about God. Uh, But it does make for some strange conversations at parties and coffee shops. And they say, now, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a theologian. And they're like... Usually the next question is, uh, so what have you been watching on Netflix lately? (laughs) Change the subject as quickly as possible. I once had one person ask me, is that a metal band? And I'm like, yeah, that's my person. I used to be in a metal band 30 years ago, back when I had actual hair. Actually, Mason's sitting on the back. Mason, will you stand up a second? Now there's some hair, like a good metal hair. Put it out there, Mason, yeah. I wasn't quite that long, but... uh, Those were good days. Now, these are bald days. Theology, though, also sometimes sparks people to take a different tact. When they hear that I'm a theologian, it's almost as if they believe this is their opportunity to set me straight when it comes to God. You know, like, I've got the answer and now I have someone who's telling other people what God's about, so let me tell them what it's all about. Those people are interesting because, oh well, I won't go into the details of what kind of people they are, but today I want to talk about these views of God and begin with Ahmed. Ahmed found out I was a theologian and then sort of shifted into, well, I'm going to tell you the truth about God and began to list the divine attributes. He said, God is timeless, omnipotent indestructible, impassable, immutable, independent, impenetrable. And I'm like, whoa. He said, God is outside of all time and space, has no needs whatsoever. And I was thinking to myself as he was talking, you know, I happen to know lots of other famous theologians in history who've who've had that similar vision of God. But I said, um, now tell me, does this timeless and independent God, does this God actually love? And he said, oh, yes, God loves, but it's a different kind of love than you and I know. It's a category beyond all categories. It's a mystery. It's not like our love in any sense whatsoever. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that 
you seem to be really confident that God is timeless, omnipotent, etc. But when it comes to love, it's like, pull out that mystery card. I don't really know. I said to him, you know, I'm the kind of person that when it comes to God, I start with love and then try to figure out the other aspects of God in light of love. He reminded me of another person. Oh, I forgot to put, again, forgot to put the uh, little... This guy, Ahmed, thinks God has no needs whatsoever and exists outside of time, timeless. Another person I want to talk about, his name is Margie. Margie also, when she found out that I was a theologian, decided she needed to unload all of her views about God, except in her case, she believes God is mad, really mad at you and me, and all of the world, but especially about America. Everything that's bad that's happening right now, she says, is God's punishment. The pandemic, that was God. She also believes that you and I are going to hell when we die because you and I have sinned and God is pissed at us. And you know where we go if God's mad at you, H-E double toothpick. Well, I heard her talking and I said, what happened to the idea that God is forgiving? Does that sort of fit into your scheme at all? She said, well, God forgives the just, but punishes the unjust. And I thought for a moment, I said, well, if a person is just or righteous, what is there to forgive? I said, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Is anybody righteous? She says, no, none of us. <laughs> I said, okay, so in other words, God never forgives because none of us are righteous. I said, does that make any sense to you at all? I mean, what about the God of the Bible, who is a forgiving God, who doesn't repay evil with evil, but repays evil with good? She looked at me a moment, and then as if she didn't even hear the question, she said, God hates gays. And I'm like, okay, this is a person who probably isn't going to have a good rational conversation with me. And I kind of just moved it on to Netflix or whatever it was. <laughs> Not metal, I don't think. But, uh, so in her view, God loves the faithful, but if you're unfaithful, you get punished. We're all unfaithful, so we're all getting punished now and in the afterlife. These kinds of people are hard for me to talk to. I got to admit. But there's another kind of person who has a view of God that I don't find appealing, but I think comes to it more honestly and is more tentative, and I think I sympathize more with. And we'll let Karen represent this person. Karen is a person who uh, is really concerned and empathetic toward those who have been abused. She herself has been sexually abused, and she works with other people who have endured abuse. And when she talked about her struggles and thinking about a God of love, she said, I don't think God causes evil in the world. I don't think God causes abuse, but God allows it. God permits it. God has the kind of power to stop it, but for some reason, some inscrutable divine plan, some Something that I don't understand, God has allowed what happened to me 
and so many others. I looked at her and said something that many of you may find shocking, but I'm just going to put it right on the table. I said, what if a loving God can't prevent evil single-handedly? Now, some people, when I say that line to God can't prevent evil single-handedly, you can see them like the, the steam starts coming off their head and they're like, get thee behind me, Satan, you know. But for her, it was like a light came on in her eyes. All of a sudden, here was a view of God who is not only not in control, but this God didn't allow the horrific things she and other people endure as if God could have stopped it. For her, this was good news. Good news, because that meant that God wasn't culpable, not morally responsible for the pain and suffering she had gone through and so many others. This particular view of God that I want to uh, talk about that are represented by these three people, a God who has no needs and exists outside of time, a God who loves the faithful but punishes the unfaithful, and a God who causes or permits evil and suffering, kind of represent a general picture of God that I don't find attractive. And this morning, what I would like to do, since I'm a theologian, and since Mark and I have had some great conversations, and I'm guessing some of what I'm about to say you've heard before, and maybe some of it's new, but I'd like to compare and contrast two different views. One view I want to call the conventional view of God, the traditional view. And here I'm going to mix and match and put things together in a way. I'm not going to go into lots of hairy details. I'm just going to sort of present a, a broad picture of this conventional view. And then on the other side, I want to talk about what I'm going to call an open or an open and relational view of God and let you see the two ways of thinking about God and, and present the one I find preferable. Now, let me say right up front, God didn't download this sermon into my head last night as if this is all straight from heaven and I've got everything figured out and I'm absolutely certain that this is the right view. I'm not that kind of person. I don't come to you as if I know it all. However, I do come to you believing that some ideas do seem to work better than others. Some seem to fit scripture, at least the general drift of scripture better. Some seem to fit science and our personal experience and wisdom better. And so I want to propose a way of thinking about God, not enforce it or force it on you, and let you try it on for size, all right? So let's look at 10 aspects or details of this conventional view of God. The first one I mentioned already that maybe one that a lot of you haven't thought about is the idea that God is outside of time or timeless. This is a very common view in the Christian tradition. If you look at some of the major theologians, if there's any theology nerds in the crowd, people like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, they all sought God somehow was outside of time and saw all history in one glance, knew the beginning and the end all together. 
In fact, Augustine, the most influential theologian who didn't write the Bible, thought God created time. There's one aspect of that traditional view. Whoops, excuse me. Another aspect is this, this God is omnipotent. This God is in control. Now, when theologians say this, or when people who aren't theologians, probably people you see here in Denver area, say God is in control, they seem to forget the possibility that there also might be such a thing as free will and people making real choices. Does it make any sense at all to think that God controls everything, but that we also have free will? I don't think so, but a lot of theologians have said yes. In some mysterious way, they said, God is omnipotently in control, but you and I have genuine free will. Now, a part of the Methodist tradition, most of you probably know, our tradition doesn't think that. We're Wesleyans who think that we have free choices when it comes, and God preveniently offers through grace these choices. But the classic tradition has said, nope, God is omnipotently in control. This tradition also says some people get to go to the good place and the rest of you are headed to H-E double toothpick. Heaven and hell. Some have thought, well, from all eternity, God selected some of you to go to the heaven and some of you to go to hell. Others thought, well, God knew who was going to go to heaven and knew who was going to go to hell, but your free choices put you there. Either way, in this particular tradition, not everybody gets to go to heaven or even has the real opportunity, if we understand God's omnipotence and foreknowledge well. This tradition says only the elect, God's chosen, get to enjoy salvation. It also says God may or may not forgive. You need to ask you need to get down on your knees, pray super hard, maybe 37 times, beg and plead, and then God might relent. But maybe not, too. You've got to catch God on a good day, especially if you're not among the elect. This God may decide to give grace, as the common saying goes, but also may decide to get out the big stick and teach you a lesson. This God also is a kind of God who actually primarily loves God's self. I know this one might sound really weird to you all, but let me explain it. This is what Augustine thought. He reasoned like this. God is smart. So far I'm on board with him. God is smart. God loves or values only which is that which is supremely valuable. And God is supremely valuable. So God only loves God's self. The ultimate narcissist. Now that just doesn't fit with the way I read the scriptures. It doesn't fit with the first verse I ever memorized as a little boy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That sounds an awful lot like God loves us. But that traditional God who only wants to love and contemplate the most valuable, ultimately only loves and contemplates God's self. 
another aspect of this God. This God either is the cause of the pandemic, all wars, all torture, all abuse, or this God could stop them, but chooses to permit them, to allow it. This God has the kind of controlling power to up and fix the pandemic as quickly as it started, but decided to let things play out and have some people die and get sick, you know, wait it out, see where the course went. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't to me, but maybe you'll see my alternative in a moment. This God is also self-sufficient in every sense possible. This God doesn't need you or me for anything. God can get the job done all alone. Our lives, our contributions don't ultimately matter. Oh, maybe God will invite us to do something, but if we fail, God's going to get the job done no matter what we do. This God has no needs at all. Now, at first, that sounds kind of good to some people, but when you start thinking about it, it kind of starts sounding weird. Imagine you decide to partner with someone for a lifetime in marriage, and your partner says to you, yes, I would like to get married to you, but let me tell you right up front, I don't need you at all. And in fact, nothing you do is ever going to affect me or how I think. I'm guessing most of you would think that the person who said that is unhealthy, like there's a healthy sense of dependence, a healthy sense of need. But the God described in conventional theology, no needs whatsoever. This God also has decided from all eternity everything that's going to happen, including the fact that today in this service, Tom is going to awkwardly stand with his hand up to his left in front of you. That was decided from all eternity. Every good thing and every bad thing that's ever happened is a part of this God's divine blueprint. It's all determined. This God also will occasionally intervene into a situation. Maybe jump in and rescue a child who's about ready to drown. But not always. It's just on occasion. Which means all the other kids who do drown, you're thinking, okay, what happened here? If God can help out one person and intervene to save the day, why doesn't God help out everybody? This God is supernaturally interventionist into the world. Not always present. Most of the time, kind of sitting up on Mars, eating popcorn, saying, Good luck, St. Andrews down there. I might show up on Sunday morning if you pray hard enough and if Mark preaches well. But most of the time, this God is aloof. This God also, and finally, doesn't really love consistently. This God is the God described in Scripture that says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. This is a God who loves some people sometimes, if they're good, but maybe not all people all the time. Inconsistent lover. 
Now, those are the characteristics of this conventional view. And again, I'm kind of throwing lots of ideas together here. If we were to look at really nerdy and go down to individual people, they might, we might take a few in and out here and there, but that's a general view. And I'd like to see as a raise of hands, if how many people here have heard people describe God in one of those kind of ways? Does that sound familiar? Okay, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. This isn't new ideas. In fact, if you're like me, you may have one time embraced some of those ideas. I used to think some of those. Now I want to present to you an open and relational view of God. This is the one I prefer. I'm not absolutely certain it's true, but I want to offer it to you as a possibility. First of all, unlike the God who's outside of time, this God is moving through time with us moment by moment. The past is past for us and for God. The future is open and yet to be determined for us and for God. Sounds remarkably like the God usually described by the biblical writers in my view. This guy, God also can't control others. Not because God's a weakling or a wimp or a wussy. This God can't control because this God is loving. And loving is not controlling. Yes, powerful, but not controlling kind of power. A persuasive, calling, empowering, inspiring kind of power. This God wants everyone to have eternal life, everyone to flourish, all people and all creation, now and in the future, to find full salvation. This is not a pick and choose, you're in and you're out. Everybody, ollie ollie income free. This God is also a God who's going to forgive you no matter what. Never going to retaliate. Never going to pick up the stick and whack you in the butt. This God is a God who forgives from the get-go. Now, there are some natural negative consequences that come when we harm one another. But those aren't God with the big stick. That's just part of living in a world in which choosing something that's harmful is harmful. That's not God. This God is also one who loves you and me and all of creation and loves God's self. Did this kind of surprise you? Were you thinking as I compared the two that it would be God loves God's self over there and over here it would be God loves us and doesn't love God's self? Actually, I think God loves us, all creation, and God's self. And... That's important if we're going to actually take seriously the Apostle Paul's charge that you and I ought to imitate God because that means we love others' creation and ourselves. There's a healthy, healthy sense of self-love. God does it perfectly. You and I want to imitate that self-love. This open and relational God can't stop evil single-handedly. Now, I know this is a troubling issue for some of you because you think to yourself, it would sure be a lot more comforting 
if I knew God could stop the bad things that happen in my life and in the world. I mean, if God could stop Putin right now, wouldn't that be more comforting? But if that's the case, God's asleep on the job, right? If God can up and single-handedly stop the evil in the world and doesn't do it, what kind of parent is that? What kind of parent allows their kids to hurt each other? I'm coming to you today from the great state of Idaho. And behind my house in Idaho, there's a pretty significant stream. It's probably, oh, 30 or maybe 40 feet wide, maybe three feet deep at its deepest. And I have three daughters. Imagine my three daughters out in the stream some hot summer day playing, and I'm out in the backyard doing work. And imagine that one of my daughters, let's make it my oldest daughter, Sydney. Sydney gets angry at my youngest daughter, Andy, and takes her head, puts it under the water, sits on her head, and decides to try to drown her, to try to kill her. She's that mad. Now, suppose I'm in the yard. I look up. I see what's going on. I realize I could enter out into the stream and rescue my youngest daughter. But suppose I say, you know, I'm not causing this death. Who am I to interrupt the free will of my oldest daughter? I'll just allow. I'll just permit one kid to kill the other. No one in my subdivision would vote me father of the year. Because we all know that a loving person, if it's possible, if they're able to, prevent genuine evil does so. And yet most people I know believe in God but think that God sometimes allows or permits the horrific things that happen. What if, what if God's love is such that God can't single-handedly stop evil? That's the proposal that I want to suggest this morning. Also, what if God wants love to win, but is calling upon you and me and all of creation to join in the work of love. What if, and this is another thing that might sound really unsettling to some of you, what if love can't win in its fullest if we don't cooperate? What if God needs us? Needs us in the sense not to exist, God's going to always exist, but needs us in the sense of the mission of love in the world, that you and I, our choices really matter. That's what the open relational perspective says. And what if this God has some general plans but doesn't determine the blueprint? In other words, this God isn't just winging it like, well, whatever. This God is guiding, calling, luring, wooing us. But God isn't determining all of our responses because we have freedom and so does creation. What if this God is always present to us at all times and all places? This God never leaves us for, or forsakes us, to quote the scripture. In fact, this God empathizes with us when we suffer, actually feels the pain and suffering with us when we endure it. And what if, finally, the God that that actually exists, the open relational God, 
always loves. 24-7. Humans, other creatures, worms, quarks, those aliens that I know are out there somewhere. What if God loves everything and everyone at all times and relentlessly? That's the vision of God I find compelling. And that vision, I think, helps us to try to give a real strong response, a, a plausible, a reasonable, even a biblical response to the kinds of questions and issues that we looked at earlier. That is, when we look at someone like Karen here, who asks the question of God's love in the face of abuse, we can say to Karen, God isn't punishing you, that this pain isn't somehow part of God's plan. God is working with you, loving you, calling you and everyone else to love, but simply can't prevent single-handedly what you endured. I got a letter from a woman three years ago. We don't have any kids in here, do we? Um, I got a letter about, from a woman about three years ago who sent and said, I just read your book, God Can't. Um, I was sexually abused by my brother when I was younger. And she said, one time she had a dream. And in this dream, Jesus came to her while she was being abused and held her hand. She said for a couple of days, she felt relieved, like Jesus was with her in the midst of her suffering. But then she realized this Jesus in the dream was there and didn't stop what her brother was doing. And she gave up on belief in God. She said, there's no way I'm going to believe in a God who is there in the moment, has the power to prevent what's happening, but allows it. Then she read, God can't. She said, now it makes sense. I can believe in a God of love who does the utmost possible moment by moment for what's good, but can't stop free will creatures from using their free will wrongly. That God makes sense to me. And that makes sense to Karen. This is also a God who's not punishing people, not sending people to hell, calling all people at all times and all places. A God who forgives. And a God who, in response to Ahmed, is actually someone whose existence and activity makes our lives meaningful. Do you realize that if God is omnipotently in control and the end is already secured and determined and final and fixed, that means what you and I do doesn't really matter. Our lives are insignificant. But if God woos us, loves us, calls us, invites us, needs us, then all of a sudden the choices we make actually make an ultimate difference. And I find that profoundly more compelling. So that's the view I want to suggest to you today. A view I call open and relational theology. I don't know for sure that it's true. I'd like to say that every single passage in the entire Bible perfectly points to this view, but I've read the Bible. And the Bible's got a mixed message. I think the majority points to this view. 
I think the revelation we find in Jesus points to this view, but I've read the Bible, and there's some tough passages there. Let's just admit it. However, even though I'm not certain that this is the accurate view of God, I'm actually trying to live my life day by day, moment by moment, as if it's true. And my invitation to you all this morning is to consider the possibility that you also live as if there's a loving, open, relational, uncontrolling God at work in your lives and all the world. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.